Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Eleanor and I spoke with the journalist and podcaster Pandora Sykes. Pandora spoke about how she got her first job in journalism as fashion features editor of the Sunday Times Style. She talked about how the Hilo, her podcast, became a massive commercial success. And she talked about how uh, brand consultancy works. It's a really interesting episode and we hope you enjoy it. So hello, we are with Pandora Sykes, who is a journalist and the co-host of the Women's Best UK uh, podcast, uh, The Hilo, in her beautiful home. Thank you, Pandora, for having us today. Thank you. And so well, let's start um, from the beginning. So talk to us a little bit about when you first became interested in journalism. I know you're a voracious reader. Um, you've talked about that a lot. And you did some journalism at Leeds for the student paper there. But did it? were you reading magazines before that? Yes. I've never... I can't recall a time where I haven't wanted to be a journalist. Even when I was tiny, I remember when I was about nine or ten, I graduated from story writing to thinking, okay, I want to write for magazines. And, um, yeah, I've been buying magazines since I was tiny. I've been collecting Vogue since I was 14. Um, But I've had subscriptions to every magazine for as long as I can remember. Um, So it was always something that was, yeah, on the agenda. But I didn't go to journalism school because I wanted to do an English degree where I would get to read a lot and then I did a little bit of writing for student paper in hindsight I should have done a lot more um I think if I was at university now everyone's so much more engaged mm. but well, people are like writing for the Guardian in their first years I now I find that astonishing no um I, I am still very proud of a piece I wrote for the lead student paper though about smirting which is smoking and flirting and it was about whether the smoking ban was our new love connection and Ooh. I still think that stands. <laughs> so you're saying that people flirt best because, in smoking areas? Because people had to, yeah, go outside. There was a small amount of people. You were borrowing people's lighters. So I just felt like that was a... And some people do look quite sexy when they're smoking as well. I'm sorry to say some people look yeah. quite sexy when they're smoking. <laughs> okay. So, and were you interning at, um, whilst you were at Leeds? Yes, I did a couple of internships at Leeds, but it was quite hard to get, I think probably still is, to get internships until you've graduated. Mm. So I did um, one at the Telegraph, I did one at the Week, um, and I did another one, I can't remember, but they were just kind of, you know, it was more work experience, a couple of weeks here and there. And then when I left university, I interned for almost two years straight, which is the real travesty, I think, of um, because if you don't have a family friend, which I did, to stay in their spare room or on their sofa, then how on earth do you afford to intern for such mm. a long time? But I did pretty much three back-to-back internships. I was at ES Magazine for five months, and I was at the now defunct InStyle for 11 months, which I think is as long as you can have someone until you have to pay them. Yeah. You know, there's a gear shift, isn't there, in salaries? And then I was at GQ, I think, three or four months. Um, and how did you, during that time, how did you find the transition of what you were doing when did you first get to write and get stuff published and things like that during those so um actually I was really lucky at all of them I did because I don't think that's a given I was features assistant uh at all of them on my second day at ES I did a cover interview with them with an actress called Lydia Leonard and it was heavily rewritten I was probably only sent because no one else could do that time um but I did quite a lot of bit bits there like roundups and stuff like that GQ would be the same, you know, it would be tiny bits, it would be... The um, details, actually. Yeah, exactly. It might be a restaurant or a, a film roundup. Um, there, it's definitely, it was definitely more research. And then install a lot, because I was there for almost a year. Um, so again, in all of them, there's a lot of, like, Christmas gift guiding, I seem to remember, which is the bane of anyone's life, Christmas gift guides. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I probably did the most at install, and that was when, it was when I left install, and I'd had a blog the whole way through a social commentary blog just for my own discipline just to make sure I was writing every day because when I first moved to London I had a year um, where I was a PA to a screenwriter brilliant screenwriter called Christopher Hampton who did the screenplay for um, Atonement he wrote Dangerous Liaisons like amazing man Um, and I took that job because I couldn't find any openings and I just needed I needed to be working straight away Um, so I had done that and then I had done those internships and yeah, it was only at InStyle when I'd had this blog and I'd had that blog going throughout my time at Christopher's because obviously it wasn't a writing job. 
And my then editor said, you should put some fashion on there. And I said, no, no, because that will really water down the social commentary. I did put fashion on. It did water down the social commentary. <laughs> I did become only known for fashion for quite a long time. Did you so. notice the readership going up as soon as you started? I just noticed and have always noticed that I have been called exclusively a fashion journalist, and it has never just been. I've never just been a fashion journalist. I've always written um, interviews or lifestyle pieces or mental health or pop culture. Always because I've always freelanced whatever job I'm at. I've always done other things on the side, but fashion is the dominant course it does override everything I suppose as well people get kind of a visual of you yeah. and you are always kind of so fashionably dressed I don't know you, you just think of Definitely fashion, always fashion be dressed. yes I think you, exactly people just see you, you don't see below that surface yes. so people would see um you know a piece I've written about shoes and then everywhere I went would be like what do you think of my shoes and I think of do you of notice that your fashion content does better did better on the blog though just in terms of how so rather weirdly because I never ran it as I think if you start a blog now it is strategic all my decisions, whilst in hindsight have been strategic, have been accidental. So I never looked at the analytics. Oh. I have no idea how anything did. It was a Even real. Even when it became a business, because it started to make money at some point. Um, towards the end, I did some partnerships, but I folded it almost as soon as it became profitable because I didn't like being called a blogger over a journalist. Right. It felt very unfair to have always worked full time and to be called that. And I thought I need to do a bit of. I don't know, I thought I needed to be a bit careful. And were you, were you clear from the beginning that this, you were going into journalism, although you didn't want to write exclusively about fashion, it was going to be around those kind of fashion lifestyle interviews areas? Or did you ever look at any, did you ever look at doing a TV or any completely different No, I never, um, no, it was always going to be writing and it was always going to be, I mean, I still, I was then and I am now, but I think I can sort of verbalise it better, interested in like, now interested in zeitgeist things interested in what women are wearing what they're talking about how they're feeling um how they're dating you know i am just fascinated by women so clothing them is a small part of that i've never specifically been that interested in fashion like my fashion archive knowledge is terrible i wouldn't know what a liar was doing in 1999 and i never had much interest in that um and the trend side i always found a bit problematic because i'm not really that interested by trends I'm just interested I think there's a reason I think people are like oh clothes don't really matter there's a reason why people wear what they're wearing and there's a reason why um some things become really popular and others don't and I was interested in what that reflected about us um do you turn down some commissions then when you notice that people are just trying to make you write about fashion or focus on fashion yes I'm really selective now so I um don't really write about much fashion at all except for man repeller which is a website in the states that I'm a contributing editor for, I would do like fun style stories for them. And then I would very occasionally do pieces for Sunday Times style, but it's almost all um, culture now or mm. first person. I don't even really know how to describe what kind of journalism. But no, I don't do much fashion. To be fair, I can't remember a fashion, I can't remember reading a fashion piece from you for a while. And, and after this, this long period of doing internships, what was your move into a, a more permanent gig? How did that work? So I then randomly heard about a fashion sharing website startup that was run by the daily mail that needed an editor called today i'm wearing and at the time it was quite a weird idea i remember someone saying to me why would anyone share pictures of what they're wearing i would like us to now take a moment to think about that but there was no instagram instagram started while i was there and that's why i started sharing pictures of what i was wearing on instagram as a way of um you know explaining what the site was doing so i would say today on today i'm wearing i'm wearing to hope to get people back. So I did that for a year and that was an extraordinary um, sort of immersion into digital and startups and also um, it didn't it didn't do hugely well and yet there were so many people involved in the running on it and I think it just really showed me that what you need is a you need a lean adaptable team. And that it was what kind of overmanaged or... Yeah, there were just so there were so many people involved. And I remember talking to her about 20 different men at one point saying, um, look, the colours look like sandwich retail packaging. Like, this looks like a sandwich retail website. We have to change it. And they just looked so clueless. But it was, I learned so much from that year. And I, the now editor of the Mail on Sunday, I believe, Ted Verity, was then, was kind of then my, he was the associate editor at the Mail. And he was sort of my boss. And he was amazing with me. You know, I was young and green and, um, I really threw myself into it and he really supported me. So, and I had, I managed two staff writers there. So it was a really great experience. Then after a year, 
I just could see that the website wasn't going to go where I wanted it to and it wasn't perhaps what I wanted to be doing. So it was a completely amicable parting. And then I was um, freelance for a few months before I joined the debrief, now defunct debrief. Mm. What was the debrief? That was Grazia's little sister website. Okay. Um, and I so it was like there. a vertical within the Grazia website? Within, well, within Bauer. Not okay. within, they, were, they were connected but not connected. Okay. So they shared a lot of things but they were run as separate businesses or at least separate visually and I was there for a year and again that was that was a high stress year because we were writing four or five pieces a day and then I was also doing my blog every single day and then freelancing on top of that so for whoever would take me Cosmo company now defunct god there's a real theme here Mm. um Mail on Sundays U magazine so it was an insanely busy time but I'm really really grateful for it because I think I piled in a lot I had some print I had some digital, I had my own website, um, which was so great because whenever I wanted to write something that I didn't want anyone else to edit or, you know, I, it, it was really lovely to have that as an outlet. That was really crucial to me. I think it stopped me from ever getting frustrated in a job because I always had my own space to go and write something. Talking of editing, we recently spoke to an author who had kind of given up on pitching for magazines because he's become so dispirited with the editing process and kind of unconsensual editing. Um, you... In terms of what you learned being edited coming up through journalism versus now, what were kind of the formative editing experiences and how has that affected your writing style today? I think when you're younger and you're edited, um, you, can't, you can't really say anything. Um, I sort of just had to accept the wisdom of elders. I think the nice... It's such a shock when your copy's completely rewritten. Yeah, I remember there's... I don't even really want to say what it was, but there was a headline once that was problematic in its insinuations and I had loads of people that magazine emailed me saying we've had lots of letters of complaint do you want me to forward them to you I thought no because I didn't come up with the headline <laughs> so there were times then when that was a bit you know it's it's quite anxiety making when someone puts a headline on a piece or a slug or a cell or whatever and you think that's so not the and sometimes you complain essence. to subs and they look at you like so does it matter if it has that's the great to do thing with about piece. being <laughs> on staff so being on staff you know Sunday time style I could see a proof and I could say please we could, please can't put that headline on and you'd have to fight with the editor to say well I want that headline but you would at least be there and you would know the process um so, so what was the initially when you were at the Sunday Times firstly how did you get there and then how did your your role develop when you were there um I was headhunted when I was at the debrief okay. which was a real surprise it was a big promotion that was definitely my um big break I think I'd always wanted to write for the Sunday Times uh, ever since I was tiny and so being fashion features editor and having the wardrobe mistress column was um, a really amazing platform and it I still maintain it, it was an incredible platform um, because you know one and a half million people read the Sunday Times and having my own designated space rather than you know tiny byline was was really amazing um, so I joined that and it just I mean it just expanded because it's a really small team so you have to do lots of different things so I was doing my column and then I was writing a fashion feature and then I was probably doing a shopping story every week. And then quite often I would write um, other pieces as well but because I'd always been interested in sort of social media and zeitgeisty stuff like that. I wrote about the hate follow. Why do we love to hate follow people on social media? But that was about four years ago when people were still sort of having those ideas of kind of culture writing around social media. And I wrote a piece about four years ago on my anxiety. And that was, that was probably the first piece I'd had that had gone viral and actually got quite a few book offers for that but decided that writing a book about anxiety would make me really anxious and I think it probably would have so I was always doing other bits there and you were saying just one of your pieces about your hungry bottom oh yes hungry (laughs) one so I liked writing I still like writing kind of silly pieces which is about pants so that never finding pants that don't go up your bottom (laughs) (laughs) um but that was kind of me actually really being able to start writing the stuff i wanted to write because the thing i love about sunday times is they're quite arch Mm. um they're almost puerile at times but it's smart it's always smart and cogent and um there's a thoughtful element in amongst the hungry bums um so when did you meet dolly was dolly already working there no so dolly joined as a dating columnist so she was freelance um and her and Cosmo had a dating column at the back and our first podcast Pandoli podcast came around about six months before I left because um I was just getting itchy feet I wanted to do 
something else. I was feeling like I wanted to expand but my role. But you knew each other? We had met each other, yes. Okay, so it was more kind of like Sunday Times paired you. No, no, no. Sorry, we were friends. Oh, you we were, were friends. friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but we didn't know each, that, uh, each other that well. No, I went to our editor and I said, I want to start a podcast. And she was like, what's a podcast? <laughs> and I said, I want to start what, a podcast. What year was this? this was to be fair, her saying what's a podcast, doesn't it does not mean the podcast had only just started. I think it's just reflect mm. whether I've listened to podcasts. Okay. So this would have been three years ago. Okay. Because um, you have quite, listening to some of your earlier episodes for that, there's already that kind of chemistry between you two. There's friends. the chemistry. I can't listen. I can't listen to them because I just, I was doing it on top of a full-time job. Yeah. You know, I wasn't paid any more money. That that time was not cut into my work. So we were getting really, really, so, you know, newspaper hours at least on the features or the fashion side, are very generous. It was 10 till 6. So I would get in at 8 so to try and miss as little time away as possible from my desk. But I think we just said to them, oh, we'll do like, we'll do kind of a couple of stories a week. There'll be a fashion one in there, um, which is what we dropped when we stopped Pandoli. And, you know, there'll be a culture one and there'll be a sort of um, celebrity one. And she was like, okay, and who do you want to do this with? And I said, I want to do it with Dolly. And Dolly was up for it. Um, Why did you want to do it with Dolly, saying you didn't know her that well at that point? Um, because she was already writing a dating column, and I knew they loved her, and I couldn't think of anyone else that would and work. how was, it, was the podcast initially branded? Was it within the Sunday Times style was, specifically, I mean, or within the sort of broader paper? It wasn't branded at all. It okay. was us saying, we want to do this, please let us do this. Okay. There was absolutely no... I went and found the sponsor, which was River Island, um, there was, was it no easy help and no support at all. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was kind of okay. I mean, it, they paid us hardly anything, but it was, it paid, what it did, it paid Dolly. The sponsor paid Dolly mm-hmm. and the producer, the studio was already there. And I think it must've paid the producer as well, or maybe he was on some sort of retained Sunday Times, I can't remember. And then I wasn't paid. So it didn't make money, but it didn't lose money. And I, lo- and I loved doing it. And then... And did it do well, listenership-wise? I think it did. I think it had about 15,000 listeners. Um, and given Within what time period? Like, what was the curve? Five months. Okay. It ran for five months. Um, and it, given that there was absolutely zero promotion mm. or support, and we didn't have a clue what we were doing. Yeah. Um, I have a terrible memory, but I imagine we seeded it out on our social media. So I imagine a lot of traffic came from the fact that we already had, you know platforms at that time and your respective individual social media platforms had they built off your blog or off your columns how did that that i don't really know i'm not i'm not entirely sure to be honest probably the combination Mm -hmm. because the people that read me in the sunday times would often be very different people to who followed me on instagram or who it's quite quite tightly paywalled right the time stuff yeah yeah Yeah, it is it is and also unless you're in the UK you're not reading it when whereas you... I've got a lot of people who read myself in America and the breakdown of the high-low actually is very you know a quarter of our listeners are in America oh really what about that I think Six, only 67% is the UK that's interesting because it's you know it's ground very British humor. I know yeah 33% is all over everywhere I was wondering if we'd really like to get into the kind of nitty-gritty of the podcast in a moment but just for could you talk a bit about kind of fashion journalism in a slightly broader sense maybe for people who are not familiar with that world or work in different areas like how does it work what do you do on a kind of day-to-day basis what are the the kind of challenges and the, the exciting bits of, of working in that environment um oh goodness I think and maybe how within a newspaper environment it compares to say of a, a magazine as well I think definitely in a, you know in a newspaper environment there is always that slight um awareness that there's a lot of men in suits okay. and then there's you know all the women on the style desk with the pink carpet and ha oh, look at their silly clothes so it it wasn't it wasn't looked down on but certainly there would be like a bit of a battle of wills you know for it to have the weight that it should have given what a massive industry fashion is and the fact that every single woman wears clothes and needs to know what to wear and how to wear. Um, Because that's what I really discovered, I think, from working there, is having the column was an amazing insight into what, um, kind of how women felt. And a lot of the questions that I got, and this is is what I think really 
kind of cemented my interest in women rather than in fashion as trends is they wouldn't be necessarily looking to be trendy they would just not know how to dress they wouldn't know how to be and they would be feeling really uncomfortable and they just needed to find something that fit and that, that could allow them to then go on into their day they weren't bothered about looking kind of cutting edge or anything like that so it was a lot about kind of confidence and um just sheer kind of panic because the high street is now so enormous so a lot of what I did was distillation and curation so it would be trying to bring the best bits and trying to make sure that you're serving all sorts of ladies because the readership of the Sunday Times is hugely varied so there would be you know 50 year old in the Cotswolds and then I would get letters from 15 year olds in London so it was trying to really balance different women different ages different sizes so my fashion journalism was probably very different to a glossy magazine's fashion journalism because it had to be very, very democratic. Um, my price points couldn't be too high, so I couldn't, you know, suggest a £2,000 coat. Whereas if you look was at... Was that clearly laid out in, by sort of the editor? I think, it, yes, but it was also just obvious yeah. to me that that's what you needed to do. Um, I, I think the major problem with a lot of magazines is that all they are showing is very expensive clothes and people don't shop like that nor do I think they should shop like that I don't think people should spend £3,000 on a coat unless they're a multi-gazillionaire I, I think the value system of clothes is completely skewed I suppose so, it depends which magazines position themselves as kind of aspirational versus useful but most do useful. even yeah. ev- you know even I, I can't think of a single woman's glossy that doesn't have expensive fashion in it Cause, mm. probably because the advertisers a lot of the time well that's it yeah. you know there's no there is no single magazine that would have nothing over 300 pounds for example whereas my column would not have something over 300 pounds unless it was a coat because even like coats on the high street sometimes four or five hundred pounds so there was a strict kind of um price pricing awareness and never repeating a brand on my column and i would normally have about 30 brands what with the questions and with the wearing of the look so i just got to know the high street and the sort of like lower end of the luxury market inside out. How did the interactions with the brands work? Would they write to you and sort of pitch themselves to you or how was that? Uh, no, I, we would get all the lookbooks. So our assist, our fashion so assistants. migrants, but a lookbook is. Sorry, so um, a lookbook is where they show the clothes of the season okay. on a model. Okay. So it's like 30 pages. So and it we, comes out in advance. Of, it comes out in advance, probably three months before the clothes come into sure. the shop. Okay. I'm actually not totally sure now on what the protocol is, but about then, then it was sort of a couple of months before because I would shoot ten wardrobe mistresses at a time, so I would shoot two and a half months at a time. So you'd have to make sure that the okay. timings matched up. So we would call in all of the lookbooks, and I would every time I did a shoot, I would circle them all. I would also go in every, pretty much three times a week. I would go to the new in sections every single website under the sun just to see um where you're seeing patterns what you're seeing a lot of um and and then after that it was just it was just being hyper observant so you know someone would come in and say i saw three people on the tube today wearing bright blue trousers why is everyone wearing bright blue what's in that who else is doing bright blue where did it start so then you build a narrative around that. And I think the, the wonderful thing with is there was always a story. It's, it was never just, you should buy this because it's really trendy. At least I didn't ever write those pieces. I, was, I, am st- I still wince when I see someone say, you know, a magazine saying, buy this because all the fash pack are wearing it. <laughs> it's a term that really needs to die, the fash pack. Yeah, um, I've definitely read that in the yes mag. <laughs> Everyone just... uses it, so that's not a diss at a particular. But I was just always really keen to avoid that. I think I've always had quite a high cringe complex I've had to do some <laughs> cringy things don't get me wrong a lot of those features I remember I did one about leopard print and I was wearing a leopard print coat leopard print boots astride a fake leopard with another leopard in the background so like you know it's it's I'm I definitely put myself out there but I just I was so aware that that's not real life the fashion industry is not real life mm-hmm. so I was kind of straddling the real I th- world I thought it was interesting world. that Oh, kind of related to that, that piece you sent about the, the marketing approaches taken by some of these brands where they, they kind of pretend to be your friend, right? And I thought what was interesting about that is it seemed, you know, that was a pretty kind of serious piece of, you know, reporting journalism you'd done. You talked to everyone, I thought it was really interesting. How, how much of that kind of work were you doing where you were kind of reporting out a, a trend within the industry as opposed to, you know, something that was looking at, at a trend or, or that kind of thing? And which did you enjoy more? So that was a piece I wrote for the business of fashion and I really enjoyed doing that. It was a lot of work and it had um, a big response because business of fashion is just read by so many different people in the industry. 
I love doing that, but as it is a, it's a business piece, so that wasn't something that would have really sat yeah. in a consumer title. Um, and if it had, then it would have been less businessy because you have to be quite interested in like fashion marketing to read that piece. I it's interesting because I'm, I'm not hugely interested in fashion marketing, but I found that piece fascinating because it was like I see, I, you know, I, I kind of. I know that I know I guess you can see how it's happening like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah I was really I was riveted by it uh, I, we called it BFF marketing in the end but at the beginning I called it uh, babe marketing because it's all like hey babe like, mm. do you think it's disingenuous babe. I mean that was what I was um, no not entirely I think when it's done by the high street it's disingenuous I think those companies that were started a lot of the time from quite kind of free spirited origins yeah. like Glossier Realisation Park Reformation they're all started um, by businesswomen, but all that I know, all of the women behind, I've met all of the women behind yeah. those brands, and they are all that is them. Like Fenty, for instance, has that kind of um, conversational style yeah. about you know bringing women into this kind of fold of making them feel good. Yeah, a friend of mine runs a, a yoga uh, like or apparel equipment. I won't I won't name it, but um, you know she. It's interesting because I've kind of joked with her about this that like you're sort of claiming you're everyone's friend. Mm. Well, and like, you kind of are you do, you're doing this because you felt there wasn't the, the stuff that you wanted to wear available but like this is also quite a savvy marketing trick that I think there's a couple of reasons why it's happening I think one is that we're quite is that there's been this massive emphasis on um, listening to women essentially like societally culturally I mean that's what Me Too was that's what Time's Up was so marketeer, marketeers are realising that um, you have to be more responsive to women and a lot of these brands were built out of responding so Glossier make products when their consumers tell them what they're missing. Uh, Reformation, you know, were told that they weren't doing enough clothing for larger sizes. So then they launched lines that specifically address that woman. Ditto, the same happened with big boobs. So that that kind of reciprocal um, quality is sort of rooted in culture. But I think the other reason why they were trying to talk to people is, I always think of how Marks and Spencers was like, what you know, one of the first clothing stores on the high street. And there wasn't anywhere else to go. So they didn't have to reach out. Everyone came to them. There's now so much stuff out there that they have to think of ways of um, capturing. And, and also shoppers aren't loyal anymore. There's not really any loyalty. There doesn't need to be any loyalty. Um, so they really needed to find a way of talking to you and making you feel like, oh, are they, are they talking to me? So all these new brands rely on social media so heavily and what works on social yeah, media. Yeah, totally. A lot of them have no bricks and mortar space. They so don't spend any money on marketing. Um, social, yeah, social so is the most incredible vehicle mm. to sell. Um, I don't think it's any more disingenuous than any other facet of consumerism. <laughs> like, ultimately, they want you to spend money. So it's just how, yeah. how they achieve that. And you just touched on before the kind of feeling of the men in suits being slightly dismissive of the women in fashion. And um, I think there is certainly still this feeling of kind of male journalists, particularly if you, a female journalist writing personal pieces. And I've written personal pieces. Sometimes I feel that kind of snootiness. As a woman who's written personal pieces and fashion journalism, how difficult was it for you overcoming that kind of judgment if you did get any? Um, How am I taken seriously when I write about my hungry bottom? Um, <clears throat> it's definitely that Hadley Freeman tweeted the other day that whenever people want to insult her or minimise her, they call her a fashion journalist, even though she said, I haven't written about fashion for 11 years. Um, it's definitely used as a minimising tool. I find that when someone disagrees with me, they like to call me a blogger or an influencer. Yeah. Um, and do women do it, or is it generally women? Yeah, women do it as well. Yeah. I put up an Instagram post about vintage shopping the other day because I'm really passionate about it, and I don't think it's as like hard or as much of a minefield as people think it is. So I try and talk about it quite a lot. And someone... And I had bought a jacket from Portobello Road and I was describing how it compared to the prices on the high street. And I said, it's cheaper. I bought a vintage Gucci jacket and it's cheaper than almost everywhere on the high street at £50. And I had this woman writing, you're in a bubble if you think £50 is cheap. So I then listed, because I don't say that unless I know I'm right. I don't put things out flippantly because I think so many people put out things with me and I don't want to do that. So I then listed the price of every single blazer on the high street and there was only one out of ten that was cheaper than that. And instead of saying, I'm sorry, you're right, she replied and said, I, I, I should have known that with a career in fashion rather than politics, that, you know, that would have been your answer. And I said, I do have a career in fashion, but I also have a number one culture podcast. You know, that's really interesting to me that you are suggesting that an interest in fashion negates an interest, an awareness or a knowledge of other things. You know, if you had a lawyer that was a keen gardener, you wouldn't describe him as a gardener. No. Why? He's a lawyer and a gardener. Why did you engage? 
I mean, I suppose that, you know, that's the, uh, broader, the broader question. Of... Because I didn't want other people to see that and think that I had written that flippantly, that I hadn't okay. done my research. Okay. So normally I'm not so anal that I would be like, well, actually, here is all my research. But it felt, sometimes it feels important to... It's, it's quite hard to ignore when someone says something that, you know, really cuts, probably lays into a fear a bit, really cuts you deep. Or if I've ever written something about mental health and someone will reply going, you know, why don't you try going, go back to your shoe shopping or else go to Iraq and find out what real strife is. So you get, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of that. Um, it's as much, I, it's probably slightly more men, but I think there's a lot of internalised mm. misogyny. That's something I've battled with loads. I've I, I really have. Um, I re- I really find it difficult when I feel like I am misrepresented, and I think I think that's why I have been quite careful with the Hilo. You know, we don't talk about any fashion. We don't have any fashion sponsors. We don't work with fashion brands. Like we'll now do underwear and jewelry because we that decided that's kind of you know that's an everyday rather than a. A fashion thing but we were so careful to try and remove it from my origins because it's such an easy way for people to dismiss anything I do it's can we say, talk about the, the Hilo and then how, how it went from the, the Sunday Times podcast to the Hilo and then what the journey of that was like so the Pandoli podcast finished when I left the Sunday Times okay. we wanted to take it with us but there were all sorts of bonkers um uh kind of limitations on what we could do. And why did you decide to leave the paper? I had been there two, two and a bit years, which is the longest I've ever been at any job. (laughs) Never been at a job longer than a year. And um, I wanted to write for more people. Okay. I was getting asked to do freelance things and I was treading a careful path. Um, But I just knew that I didn't, I didn't want someone telling me how much work I could do. I wanted to work as much as I wanted to okay. um, and really explore all of my options. And it was a good time to go because there was my editor was leaving and a new editor was coming in. And I felt like to leave when a new editor's just started is a bit crap for her. And so it just seemed like a natural break. And it all happened quite quickly. I really left on a high and I really recommend leaving somewhere on a high. And with obviously freelancing is financially difficult and you have spoken about your brand collaborations before. How, if you hadn't had maybe that safety net of brand collaborations, do you think you would have gone freelance and you would have found it? I think I would have still gone freelance because I have always been quite good at generating work for myself. And, you know, if that hadn't worked, if it hadn't worked freelance, I would have been happy to have gone into copywriting and you have lots of, you know, people who do copywriting, so I knew I had those contacts. You recently said you would have done advertising in a... Yeah, I I thought about advertising. Um, I would attempt... No, I wasn't wasn't worried about that, because I think where there's a will, there's a way. But I was really lucky that I had... um, I also... That I had the brand collaboration site, and that I also consulted, and I styled. I don't consult and style at the moment. When did the consultancy start? Just when I was styling, I was uh, when I was at Sunday Times. That was something I also did. Mm. So I would do some. I would style lookbooks or campaigns for young brands, and then my consulting would be built into that. So is it just fashion consultancy rather than culture kind of consultancy on culture? Yes, I haven't done. I would be interested in doing that, but I haven't. No, I haven't done any cultural consultancy. And again, to to explain maybe to people who aren't familiar with the industry, how what does it mean to do brand consultancy? consultancy. How does this how does this work? <clears throat> so you sort of just do an overview of what they're doing. You know, I did some for a high street retailer and so beforehand I went into the store and I walked all around the store and I saw who was shopping there and how things were merchandised, so where they were laid out, how they were laid out, what their prices were. And they came to um, you or you pitched them? No, they came to me. Um, and I would look at the materials, I would look at what they were making, I would, look, I would kind of do like a 360 of everything they were doing and how they were communicating. And then you would, I was booked by the day, so I would tend to do a day of consultancy, maybe with some homework either side. It's kind of built in as part of that fee. And it would be just about telling them what you thought, in essence, what you thought they were doing great and what they should be doing better and what they were missing. And is it, is it always that where, like, you would, you would kind of go in and produce a report or are they sometimes looking for you to kind of 
be a face of a brand or things like that? How does it work? Um, Are there different ways with that? If it was a face of a brand, I have done, I've done a few kind of, I did a capsule collection for, um, capsule edit for Warehouse a couple of years ago. But no, that is very much, you are, they're separate things. If I was coming consulting, I was coming in anonymously. Right. But if I was doing a brand collaboration, then I would be part of the choosing of the pieces that would be in it, the videographer, the filmmaker, the editing, the choosing of the location, how those pictures were shot, um, how that was communicated out to press and public. And how do you kind of draw boundaries with this? I mean, are there, presumably there are potential issues of conflict of interest if you're, you're writing about this stuff, but you're also being paid by these brands. How do you negotiate? Well, there's not really, because <clears throat> I don't do very many of them. So I haven't done, and I, I probably do like, I haven't done one this year, and what are we in, end of end of March. I only work with brands I like. Um, I wouldn't ever consult for a brand that I was also the face of without making that aware. Okay. And I don't write shopping pieces. So I'm not actually writing about those brands that much. Um, so there wasn't any conflict of interest. I think where there's conflict of interest is where people aren't transparent about their involvement in a brand. Right. So if they're Instagramming something mm. and saying how much they love it, but they're also being paid to be an ambassador, that's where there's conflict of interest. But no, I was always quite strict on what I did. I would only work with people I really liked and I would always be upfront about the fact we were working together. So it, yeah, it didn't have that. I think if I had been solely fashion writing, um, and producing a lot of content that those brands were in, maybe, but because I've had a variety of things going on for quite a while, I don't think there was ever that. And how how does your income split now between the podcast and the writing and the brand consultancy? I don't do any consultancy at the moment okay. um, because I do a lot of speaking. I chair or go on panels almost weekly. I'm doing a speaker series for the Marriott Hotels at the moment. Um, but I did just finish doing some consultancy for a Peroni incubator scheme. Um, it breaks down, I think, probably a third and a third and a third. Or maybe the high-lows, half, and then a quarter writing, a quarter speaking. When did the high-low become commercially successful? How quickly? Because you brought a lot of the quickly listeners actually. from the Pandoli podcast. Yeah, I think most of those 15,000 jumped over. And it's now 200,000 a week, so, and it's just turned two. Um, it, uh, what was the question before? <laughs> How quickly did it become a, a commercial How did it success? Grow? Um, it, at the beginning, we went and found the brands ourselves. So we were literally, we would email 40 brands at a time and How many set up. How many get back? Um... We would have meetings with kind of four or five and then we would set up, I mean, we had uh, six months with Google, which I'm really yeah. proud of. We were the first podcast they'd ever sponsored and that was totally, that was Dolly and I contacting the PR. We would just Google every single brand, no pun intended, that we thought, you know, was a good household name or, an, you know, just, we wanted just good, reliable kind of names that people had heard of, like trusted products, so... Sainsbury's, for example, we had or who weren't Pop traditional chips. podcast advertisers, right? Because a lot of a lot I don't of even know. Like, we didn't know anything about podcast advertising. Yeah, we just told them why. We just pitched them and told them why they should be part of it, and we were really underselling the slots. They we, they could have gone for a lot more. So it ensured we always booked out. Would you have done it without a sponsor? No, no, I'm not interested. As I reach the end of my twenties, I'm not interested in doing work that doesn't pay. Mm. I I I, you know, I did my blog for free for years. I've done so much kind of grafting for no financial return so we were both pretty strict that this had to be profitable it had to be work it had to be a business or we weren't going to do it and that's how we think of it it's a business it's not like a hobby it's a business um so we found google and sainsbury's and one other that i now can't remember and then we we were on a platform called acast mm. um and at the beginning when we didn't have many listeners we you know were making hardly any money but that algorithm is very simple the more listeners you have the more money you make so that started building and then about six months ago, no, it must have been about nine months ago because I had just had my baby and we took minimal time off the podcast and we just could not handle that side of it. So we 
signed with independent talent and they now manage um ACAST still do the bulk of our sponsors but then they find one kind of primary sponsor every single month for us for example at the moment it's Pandora Jewelry um and do they t- still tend to come to you slash your, your I don't I actually don't know I should think it's a combination yeah. of pitching out and receiving in I'm actually not sure um we stay kind of blissfully ignorant about how how they come to us but we always have to sign someone off you know there's never a sponsor that we haven't kind of personally okay what do you think drove the traffic i mean how did the curve (laughs) i think there was anyone else doing what we were doing still don't think there's anyone else doing what we're doing in the u.s i think there is just call your girlfriend there was two dope queens i'm not sure if two dope queens are still going but i didn't think there were any two that female two-hander culture podcasts um I think also the fact that we were, by that point, established journalists. Mm. So um, we were bringing kind of our experience to it and our friendship. And um, there's a lot in it. I think the the premise of the high-low is that people don't just talk about serious stuff, go home again, and then the next time they meet, talk about silly stuff. You talk about everything you would talk about. Brexit and the same conversation as you would talk about Fleabag you know there's there's it's odd to me that we've always had this slightly kind of uncomfortable relationship with things that are lowbrow and I also don't buy into that idea that um kind of c-list culture or lowbrow culture isn't important because I think it's fascinating it's reflecting the way we live you know reality to dismiss reality tv is to kind of fail to realize the way that society and prism in which we reflect the way we're living changes so we wanted to have this podcast that had no shame so we would talk about uh you know smart things and we would talk about silly things but all the same tonally and i think the upshot of that is that it can appeal to a lot of people so there's a lot of book chat on it so we got a lot of bookworms coming um there's a lot of people who are interested in current affairs there are some people who have absolutely no interest in what we're talking about but find it really soothing to listen to two friends having a conversation. They like the vicarious nature of it. What's the demographic like? Is it? Um, I think it's mainly young women. How is it kind of? How young does it get? I don't know if you can find that out. Can you? Can you find out ages? Well, I mean, maybe you get people writing. We have in. teenagers. Yeah, yeah. we and have you teenagers. Get older women as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really 40, 50, 60s, and then yeah. low. You've said before quite a few men. Quite no, not many men. So. I think we've got a decent amount of male listeners, but if we ever do an event, they wouldn't come to that. Okay. We have like two or three Secret men in the event yeah. always. But we get quite. It's, it's sweet actually. We get quite a few like letters writing in are often from husbands of or boyfriends of people buying tickets to the shows are often buying them on behalf of. Nice. Um, and how kind of produced and scripted is it? I listened to the Shimimo episode you did and also Elizabeth Day one mm-hmm. and you know in terms of uh, you know how much do you know what you're going to be talking about in terms of the links and stuff like that you're doing and how much is it is it off the cuff the two of you um, the only off the cuff bits are bits that aren't around in, you know a news story or facts okay. that would never be off the cuff and we have a sub editor now as well because um, you can't I think when you hit a certain listenership you can't make mistakes mm-hmm. we get pulled up on absolutely everything so we have to be as careful as possible um and it is no there's a lot of it's not particularly ad hoc we'll we'll discuss a couple of days before what we're doing a lot of the time when we were covering leaving neverland i interviewed the director dan reed so i had to email him the week before to find out when he had you know a slot um so then we knew that that was going to be our topic for that week um so no, the only off-the-cuff bit would be like the book recommendations or a personal anecdote. Shamima Begum was not remotely off-the-cuff because mm-hmm. you, ca- you cannot talk about something like that unless you're really prepared. And what, what are the reactions you get? I mean, in terms of, you were saying you get kind of scrutinised by, by your listeners and people like I think that. the amazing thing about our listeners is I, I, had, I had a fear that our listeners would just be people like us and I don't want to just talk to people like us and I don't just want to learn from people like us and in the, in the guests that we book and the content we cover I think we're pretty varied but I just didn't know if our listeners would um, be particularly varied and the responses are absolutely 
we get two sides of every single story. So when we talked about Shamima Begum, we had a lot of um, young Muslim women writing to us. Um, one, one girl had had a grandmother who was turning um, increasingly fundamentalist as the reaction to the Islamophobia, which was incredibly interesting to see, I think, how someone that had been religiously fairly neutral was actually how she was reacting to how we were, or how the media here was reacting to Shamima again. Um, when we talked about Michael Jackson, we had a lot of people writing in who were um, barristers, prosecutors, but then on the other hand, we had people who had been sexually abused. Um, Did you get a lot of backlash from the deniers? No. been out in force. No, we do you know what we didn't? I think the podcast is probably, I think the listenership is largely quite liberal, and I feel mm. like the deniers... I don't think that's a particularly no, but liberal they just find response. Their way yes, yes. Uh, but I actually don't know because our sub editor now checks the inbox for us as well. I was going to say because you, you yeah, often we have to caveat on the podcast. You know, that was a joke. Please don't. Yeah, send we us do. An angry tweet. How draining. Is I that? mean, Dolly said the other day that she could really tell how careful I was when I made a joke about how much Elmet the Queen uses, and then followed <laughs> it up with. Um, I really like Elmet as well. She was like, "God, you you know that we have to be careful when you're defending Elmet." Um, what is Elmet? It's a hairspray. Right. Um, and how much has that kind of restrained your opinion? I mean, personally, as a journalist, I find it quite difficult sometimes to say what I really think because I'm just I just can't deal with the backlash. How has that affected how? Um, it doesn't. I think I wouldn't ever put something out and not be honest. We would just not cover it if we couldn't be honest. But we are definitely careful. But I think that's no bad thing. Yeah. I think in a culture where people think that they have the right to comment on everything, even when they have no idea, you know, this idea that you should have a, an opinion on everything, I think is really dangerous. I don't have an opinion on everything. We don't cover everything. Um, so I think being careful and being thoughtful about mm. what you say and being careful not to offend people is no bad lesson. Especially as two for white, all of us. you know... Yeah, it's two privileged women. women. It yeah. must be difficult. I mean, someone to... tweeted the other day, I think, or said, or, or said something like, um, God, can you stop checking your privilege every minute? And I thought, no, I'm not going to stop checking my privilege every minute. I'm really privileged. Like, yeah. I'm okay referencing that the whole time. I don't have a problem with being... I'm not ashamed of being privileged. That's not something I'm going to hide, which a lot of people do. I think the problem is when people try and sort of dumb down the opportunities that they've had in life. You know, I've worked really hard, but I've also had an enormous leg up in a million different ways. The fact that I'm straight, the fact that I'm white, the fact that I was privately educated, um, and, and, and much more beyond that. Is so there a I'm risk that, that, that mm. you kind of lose the edge of your product if you're too wary of ruffling feathers, you know, that it can become... Well, unbiased. if I don't think... I don't think if it, any regular listeners of the Hollywood ever think that we were being too careful I'm still I would say I'm still quite punchy mm -hmm. um just has more... it changed do you think the way you talk on air now is distinct to how when you started no I think the only change and this is a positive change is that we now cover topics we would have been scared to cover at the beginning okay. so for example we wouldn't have covered Shamima Begum um because we'd have said oh but we don't know that much about radicalism and um, we don't know that much about what's going on in Syria. The truth is, is we actually know as much, if not more, than everyone else who's well, listening to it. You often get on experts to talk about subjects totally. that you're not. And we do a lot of reading famous. around it. Yeah. And also the idea, I think sometimes there's a problem that we don't talk about tricky things because we don't know enough. And then that means that they're just not getting discussed. Um, so there's nothing you won't touch? Um, we're pretty careful around trans rights because I think that right. conversation is very, very flammable at the moment. Um, and I wouldn't talk about trans rights unless we had a trans guest, I don't think. Um, and is that because you've kind of burnt your fingers in the past? No, I haven't burnt fingers in the past. See it, rarely see it discussed right. And just don't want to add to a conversation that I think at the moment is um, very just really flammable I'd say of all of all the conversations that are going on at the moment kind of trans rights and I mean I don't know if you saw the Economist headline a couple of weeks ago uh, about whether trans people should be sterilised oh yeah so um, and even the, the debate around that film Girl if you see about the transgender yeah yeah woman, yeah yeah which I really want to see that Nora Mansfield yeah, yeah. Um, I just 
I, I just feel like a lot of the journalism around it is just dividing and polarising and offending more than mm. it's doing any good. So that is why that's something that we are very careful to cover. Um, we have in the past. We had we had Juno Dawson on, oh, yeah. who's a brilliant YA novelist. Um, she came on to talk, not to talk about trans rights, but it was an inevitable part of our conversation. Um, but I, I I really don't want to insult anyone, and mm. I think with that conversation at the moment, not many people seem to be getting it right. So that's why we don't talk about it a huge amount. Okay, well we're right up against our time limit. Pandora, thanks for being such a, a a candid and fascinating guest, and wishing you all the very best with your projects going forward. Thank, Thank you. you. Hello, it's us again, uh, with an update from our lives and some post-mortem analysis for the episode. Ellie, what did you think of that one? It was really fun. It was lovely going to Pandora's house, which is as beautiful as I've seen from small snapshots on Instagram. She is obviously a a mean decorator. Um, And she was great. I mean, I've been a Hilo fan for two years now, so I was trying hard to... To rein not, in your family yeah, impulses. and not tell her how much I knew about her life already. Um, but she was great. I was I was glad to see how easy, you know how willing she was to talk about the commercial aspect of the high low and also the brand consultancy. Yeah, I thought it was she was yeah admirably candid and all of that stuff, and also talking about her writing and the sort of whole world of fashion journalism and how it works from the inside out so great to have her on and she was a bit worried that any Hilo fans might get upset about her talking about the trans community she's quite anxious about that afterwards yeah that is I do very feel true. I do feel sorry for both of them having to deal with the collective trollers of the internet yeah. anyway um, Ellie what's been going on with your life um, as I was just saying to you earlier I am feeling very worse for wear this morning as it is a Saturday morning and I was out last night and I can't quite think of all the things that I've been doing um, Ellie is currently in a sort of semi-fetal position on a yeah, sofa with a scented a candle, some daffodils. <laughs> um, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna hand it over to you, and you, you tell me about your life today, Simon. Fair enough. Um, I was in France for a assignment for Outside Magazine in Germany, which was interesting, uh, and I've been wrapping up two other uh, assignments for Business Week and working on various other things, um, and that's largely it. Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikham. And me, Eleanor Halls. Our producer is Nicola Keane. Zara Hankier handles our social media. Our graphic design is by James Edgar. And our score is by Jess Danheiser. If you would like to uh, find us on social media, we're at Always Take Notes on Instagram and Take Notes Always on Twitter. And as ever, we'd love it if you could rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. Or if you fancied contributing to our crowdfunding page on Patreon, that would also be brilliant. Thank you and goodbye. Bye.